you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Again, with one more episode of Guns and Mental Health. Uh, this is a podcast for people who are interested in lots of things, not just guns and mental health, but um, one of those interesting things we were just discussing before we started was uh, music and how it's therapeutic. But uh, first, I want to give heed and pay thanks to our sponsor, Arms Corps, for making this podcast possible. If you want to check out Arms Corps, Go to armscore.com, A-R-M-S-C-O-R.com, and look at what they have to offer. Mike, you're a big fan of their 1911s. I think they make some of the best 1911s on the planet, and I'm familiar with 1911s, obviously, as coming from someone who imported them from from the Philippines as well, their, their, their competition. But I absolutely love Armscore. I love the people that work there. I love how they are behind mental health and firearms ownership. They're advocates for that. Um, they make some great ammo as well. Uh, definitely go to their website and check them out. Yeah, and uh, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we should probably introduce our guests so it doesn't just sound like Mike and I talking here. Chris Jackamick, 20-year <laughs> Air Force veteran. How are you, sir? Hey, it's a great Monday morning out here in uh, Las Vegas. Uh, chilling some coffee, speaking with some uh, two good folks that I've gotten to meet over this last time on some, uh, some work that we are both, we are all very passionate about. Yeah. I, I really appreciate what's going on. I appreciate that, you know, among all the, the zooming that's going on that makes us kind of go a little bit, um, neurotic, uh, cause we're staring at our screens and there's like, I think it's unhealthy to have blue light going into your eyes for that long of time. But, uh, one of the major benefits is that we've connected, with people that we probably wouldn't have connected with from across the state and across the country. And part of the work that, you know, to which you allude that we're doing is in the realm of veteran suicide prevention, specifically with uh, VA and the governor's and mayor's challenges respectively across the state. Um, so you're involved in that, Mike, Mike and I are involved and we can get into that a little bit more and talk about what it is, but um, I'd like you to, to share what you do for your uh, contribution in that in that realm and then we'll get into some more stuff that you do because you do a lot yeah I do and I uh, I almost trip over my own feet sometimes but I'd rather trip over my own feet and fall and fail and get back up uh, if it can save a life and can go there so uh, Jake thanks for the introduction uh, for those listeners who are tuning in my name is Chris Jack and make I go by Jack um, I served in the Air Force for the past 20 years and retired on the 1st of February. Um, joined in September in 1999. So my first uh, duty station as an airman was Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. And my last duty station as an airman was Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. So it brought everything full circle. Um, I, I've seen the ins and outs and the changes of mental health and um, resilience across the Air Force for the past 20 years. Is uh, Knowing what it looked like prior to 9-11 happening and the wars after that, uh, we've kind of gone back and forth. So I was a young 20-year-old 20 uh, 20-year-old airman here on Nellis when 9-11 happened. Uh, and that was a tough, tough year because in, in March, 
March of 2001, I was on my first deployment to Kuwait supporting uh, Operation Southern Watch. Uh, but on the 5th of March of that year, I lost my mother unexpectedly as a 20-year-old. As a so I would come back from that, um, you know, really changing my life. And, and understanding grief at the time is here, here I was, somebody, uh, somebody I was entrusted to go over there and protect our nation. And I had a lot of good things that happened uh, on, the, on the deployment. You know, this was the 10th anniversary of the uh, Gulf War invasion. Uh, I was in a position of trust over there, so I got to meet um, I got to meet President Bush Sr., Margaret Thatcher, John Major, uh, Schwarzkopf, and, and General Schwarzkopf and Powell during that time. So for me, as a young twenty-year-old, and like that, uh, the Gulf War, watching it play out on TV, like those were my heroes growing up. Uh, they were a big inspiration on why I joined the military. I remember when Tops put out the baseball cards for the war and like we would collect them and we oh, would yeah. trade. Uh, we would trade and had pen pals over there, my brother and I. So that was a, like a real good incentive and to, to meet your to meet your heroes like that was uh, and somebody that influenced your life at such a young age and was a calling to serve. That was a, very powerful for me. Uh, but nobody would have suspected, you know, my mom was 39 when she passed is I was 20, came back. I'd lose my grandfather two months later to stomach cancer. Uh, but I was serving as security forces or military police at the time. So I was armed up every day uh, coming back, protecting some pretty sensitive resources for the government. And the fact that I was still undergoing grief at the time from losing uh, two of the very important people in my life, but still entrusted with a firearm to protect resources uh, says a lot. And so I think 2001 was a lot different than we are today. Um, if eventually it got up to me and I had to make that decision. I was like, um, I was on post one day and I'm like, I, I couldn't do it any longer. I was like, Hey, please, you know, please go ahead and get me off post. It's like, I'm not in the right mental capacity um, to be able to be doing this because I don't think I could properly do my job in the mental state that I was in. But at the time that took me, it didn't take somebody else saying, Hey, like, we're going to take this from you. We're going to take this from you. Uh, it took me standing up and saying like, look, I know I have enough self-control and self-reflection to say, like, I need help. Um, this isn't doing me any good. And I had to look outward because the way I was, I wasn't going to be somebody that if, God forbid, we had an attack or or something like that or a security incident, like, I don't feel that I could protect my brothers and sisters at the time. So I think sometimes we have to come to that self-awareness. You know, and then here we are, you know, six months later after my mom passes away, you know, 9-11 happens. I'm not even 21 yet, and the world completely changes. Um, and that was very drastic and different. Did you uh, get judged at all for acknowledging that you weren't in the right headspace? No, not at all. Not at the time. Interesting. Um, it was actually very encouraging. They're like, okay, that's good. Let's Let's get you the help that you need, which is... Uh, at the time, as we look back, is there was a lot of shame and stigma around mental health in the early 2000s, especially serving like, oh, you're weak. You can't do it. Um, I think I shamed myself because once 9-11 happened is I stayed back. I didn't deploy with my brothers and sisters right away mm -hmm. uh, so that I carried that guilt and that shame for a little bit that I sought help. I didn't go downrange and, and do what I needed to do. And it would be years later that I finally would. Uh, so initially, like I had that, but my time would come in 2003 when I did finally get healthy and it was in a much different form. So, um, 
I think you got to look back on, back on that is like how many people could have been okay if they just took that leap of faith and got through that, especially in a time where we weren't as open about mental health, um, suicide prevention and, and firearms. It's interesting because I think my impression was that, you know, it's crazy, by the way, that we're talking about 20 years ago like it was yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. But apparently we're in that demographic now. <laughs> we're, we're old dudes. <laughs> um, but uh, it, in my head, the, the impression that I've been left with by a lot of veterans is that it wasn't okay back then. It's getting to be okay now. But it sounds like your experience was not exactly that. It sounds like you you, you were actually uh, welcomed into rehabilitation or recovery, whatever you want to call it, at that point, and they gave you the space to make the change. Um, but is that was that maybe an outlier? Do you think? I, I think so because it wasn't the norm. I I think it was based upon a, a lot of my performance, being a high performer, like that. Okay. They wanted to retain me and keep me around. Uh, I can't say that. Uh, for everybody because there's some there's some stories you'll hear out there is is so when we had the surge they brought in a lot of extra folks into the services and then when the drawdown happened is they would uh there would be often times that they would find a way to release them and the easiest way was to say okay you know they were not mentally fit for duty so as the war progressed uh, i think that that we saw the changes it was all a lot of it was based upon personnel actions. It's like, okay, we need this many people to come in is we need this surge of people. Okay, now we have too many people. We need to start letting them go. And then you would find any little infraction to be able to go there. Uh, and the Air Force got there. We, you know, we did this massive thing in, uh, in like 2013, uh, before that actually, like uh, it was called Force Shaping. And, and so that's when sequ- uh, the sequester happened Um during the prior administration to where we cut like 20,000 people in a single year. And so the commanders had to make a choice and literally you had to write these people down on, on papers, like who you wanted to keep and who you didn't want to keep. So you changed all these lives at once. And the funny thing was, is a lot of the branches of services, uh, at least the air force that I can speak on, uh, in some cases they contradicted that local commander's decision to where like, the people that they wanted to keep, they didn't allow that local commander to keep. And the people that they didn't want to keep for this higher fire decision, they kept. So it, it, that caused a big rift on there. And then the fact that it was a quick drawdown, um, we really didn't have a lot of these transition resources built up at that time. So I think that's where we saw a lot of our veterans struggling. Uh, and that would be the time of the initial VA report as well, too, as we're getting all this data in. So the war in Afghanistan is still fighting. Iraq is kind of drawing down. We do the sequestration. We're sending a lot of people out the door. The transition resources aren't as robust as they were today. So it kind of created this perfect storm. Oh, and then, by the way, we go into this massive housing crisis that's in America. That, that's being, you know, the dot-com bubble bursting and then the housing market. So it created this massive perfect storm that kind of happened during that 2010, 2011, 2012 era. Wow. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the fact that you're basically terminating somebody's career without a plan to move them into the real world. Um, and it wasn't of their own doing, there was no predictable way of, of anticipating it. And now to hear you say that even the people who may have been told, Hey, you're going to be let go. Uh, uh, you're going to be kept it, it inverted. That can really screw some people up. And you, and we're talking tens of thousands. That's, that's pretty it's pretty eye-opening, actually. 
Yeah, it's still something today that even in the firearms industry, because naturally the a lot, there are a lot of vets that gravitate towards the firearms industry for you know to further their career when it's all yep. said and done. And um, since they've a lot of the people that I know have found out that I work in suicide prevention, been working with the VA, Governor's Challenge, you know, Mayor's Challenge, all these things. Um, they they always tell me that. That's one thing that always stays with them. It's like when they're done, then they're disposable. But you can't turn that off, you know, like you your purpose, you know, everything you're doing. No, you really can't. Uh the uniform just kind of becomes ingrained in you. It's like the call to the call to serve is that's like a core soul value. Like that's nothing to where you can't step away from that. It's like that that's a calling. And then when when the uniform comes off, there's still a little piece of that. But it's like and you don't want to you don't want to give that up because the, I I think that's that's why it's like, OK, my time may be done serving this purpose here, uh, but I'm still going to go out and do my best to be the best American that I can be because these are the core values. This is what I set up. This is what I believe in. Um, sure, you may have some outliers there as well too. You know, some people may have come in for education to escape a, a bad situation, everything, and the military was the easiest option. But I think the high majority, it's that calling. It's like it's it's to be part of something bigger than um, what you could ever become. And then when you go that, like they, we assimilate so quickly and there's like a systemic, there's this great system that they've built up from basic training and boot camp to your advanced training, to your technical training, everything like that. Like they give us all these tools. But when we transition out, you go to a one week course. I personally think the transition process should be as long as the process that you needed to enter the military. Like you need that. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of us struggle because they tend to focus just on employment, but not the, I'm about to lose my tribe. Like I'm about to be disconnected from people who've got my back that have been there, that have taken care of me. Um, I've got to figure out this massive emotional change and transition in my life to where like, I'm going one day from being a citizen soldier to the next being just some other person in society. Um, there's a lot of power and prestige that comes in the military too. Like people wear their rank on their sleeve if, if you've probably heard that term before. So like if you take away that title of sergeant or you take away that title of, of colonel, like people pride themselves on those titles. And when it's gone and you're just Mr. or Ms. again, like uh, a lot of people struggle with that. Um, I, I talk I talk regularly about um, identity as a matter of um, self view and how we um, I, we tend in this culture to uh, identify as our work right so it's like I am an accountant I am a therapist I am a salesman and in English uh, we only really have one form of the verb the infinite verb to be the infinitive verb to be and it's it sounds very permanent so it's i am you are he is she is okay so in other languages uh there's two two versions one's temporary and the other's permanent so you could say i am a cold or i have a cold uh and it or sorry <laughs> i am sick uh with a cold and it and it's the temporary version so in spanish would be you know yo estoy enfermo i am you know i am sick um and then in uh in and then you have the permanent one where it's like, yo soy hombre, I am a man, right? That's not really not going to change. It's more permanent version of the verb. But in, in English, we, we have a, 
only one version it all sounds permanent so if we we repeat that speech over and over and over and it becomes our self-talk i am an accountant i am a soldier i am an airman you know uh, and then you stop doing that thing and you go who am i i don't know who i am anymore without the insignia without the title without the the role the responsibility whatever it is and so in you know in psychotherapy we try to encourage people to to hold loosely to their beliefs and their and their um, tasks and duties and hobbies so that they don't conflate what they do or what they think with who they are as human beings. Um, and all that being said, it's just very, very hard to do because with, how else do you identify when people, when somebody walks up and say, you know, what's the first word out of your mouth? Like, well, what do you do for work? It's like, Oh, so it, we jump right to the, to the task or the, or the, the duty as a matter of self identification. So then once that's taken away, you're left with a big gaping hole. Well said, Jake. <laughs> Big job. pregnant no. Is that um, where we bring the crickets? There's in? those damn crickets. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I have a question for you, and I know it's a little personal, but you did put it out there. You, you said your mother passed away while you were yes. you were gone. Was that a sudden thing, or was that a gradual thing? Uh, no, it, it, was com- it was completely sudden, and here was the shock. Is like I remember this memory so clearly. It's like the beginning of, it was the beginning of March that year. Um, this was when we didn't have all like Wi-Fi technology and everything like that. So we, we'd have to go to like this phone booth area with phone cards and everything at these deployed locations. You dial into a base operator, which just would have to be the closest to uh, to where they were living at. So I had to figure out what the what the dial in number for Great Lakes Naval you know base was there because uh, she lived in the Chicago area and then dial in and patch through and you got 10 minutes. Uh, so I had this 10 minute phone call. And my mom's like, I'm not feeling well. I'm real dizzy, uh, but I love you. And then the phone just all of a sudden cuts out. And, and it happened. I mean, I'm I'm in Kuwait. This is like 2001. Our, you know, you can't just pick up a cell phone and connect it to Wi-Fi and call from a cave in Afghanistan. Uh, which is, we can get on that Joe Rogan phone call later, which is hilarious. Uh, but but that's the way. It, and that would be the last phone call I ever had with my mom. Um, so. Uh, my mom struggled for a long time with mental health. She was in and out, um, bipolar disorder, manic depressive, was on lithium a lot. So I thought the worst. Um, she ended up, several years later, I would actually request her death certificate and she died of sepsis. Um, but I had long suspected it was suicide. Uh, and that's be, just because of the mental health that my mom had been through, like uh, unpeeling and unraveling the onion as I got older. Like I was curious because there would be like weekends growing up that my mom couldn't have visitation with us. And she ended up being in a hospital to where they were adjusting her medication and everything how, like that. How, how like growing up around that? Because I grew up around a lot of people uh, untreated, you know, mental health issues. Uh, how did how did you cope with that? Or because I know how I did it. I was always like a mediary between everybody. You know, um, I was I was I, I was very cognizant of it, and I look back on it. And sometimes I get angry because these stories that have all become like legendary. Like my yeah. my grandmother taking an axe to a bathroom that she wanted fixed that my grandfather was being lazy about. We laugh about that. Looking back on that, that's not normal behavior. You know what I mean? So how did you deal with it? I I. I don't, I don't know. Like I have to, I'd have to reflect back and see if there was any abnormal behavior. Uh, there may have been some, but the way I remember my childhood was just the quality time I got to spend with her. Like, uh, baseball games and little things like that is, you know, trips, trips out to 
Uh, there's this place in the Chicago area. It's called the Little Red Schoolhouse, and it's out in the Forest Preserve. And just walking around the lakes there, uh, going to the Brookfield Zoo, uh, going to Chicago White Sox games, Milwaukee Brewers games, Bucks and Bulls games, like you know, seeing Michael Jordan at his height with my mom, you know, in the stadium and and things like that. Uh, that that's what I remember. Uh, just the quality time. And when we didn't have it, you know, the feeling that I had is, Oh, I don't get the quality time with my mom this weekend. Um, you know, she would do everything she could to just be present for us and kind of mask us from like the things that were actually going, like actually going on. Uh, the end of that phone call, the, I love you is, would make me think too, that maybe she was going to do something to hurt herself. It was, that's just an awkward conversation. Yeah. Uh, It it de- it definitely was because you just you just you just never knew. Is like that was when my brother and us were kind of coming into our prime. We had left the nest. Is she? I think she lived for us, and so my brother was turning eighteen. You know, about to leave the house to to go on to do things that he needed to do, and I was gone. You know, I was an airman now. I wasn't in in the area, uh, and I think there was a profound change. But I I could see the pride. I could hear the pride that you know. My sons have made it. My sons are, are doing well. And, and as a parent myself, I think that's what you want for your children is you want to see your children succeed. And, and maybe like that was her life goal. And she didn't know, you know, and that's why I suspected things like that for a while. I was like, maybe I achieved my ultimate life goal is to see my children succeed. So what do I have left in life at this point? And I think this is that point right there is why our older generation struggles with suicide so much it's because they reach this terminal goal in their life like they're in their 50s they're in their 60s they're like what do i do now i have grandchildren i'm happy like what is the purpose of my life for the remaining 20 30 years that i may have on this earth and so they ruminate in these thoughts because as humans we want to keep achieving i believe we want to do that we want to see like what's next what can i be satisfied with and so maybe that's why our elders struggle with it so much is they don't know what's next they see that there may be not much time left on here and they struggle because they may have lost their purpose i wonder if that's always been the case or if this is something new you know across humanity i mean um it, I, I really struggle with the idea that, that that's always been the way it is. Um, I, I got to believe that technology has, has driven us more apart than it has brought us together. And I don't mean technology in the last 10 to 15 to 20 years. I mean technology since the 1800s um, where we're asked to produce more faster and generate profit and revenue and whatnot. Um, and then at the end of that career, so to speak, you're supposed to just go right off into the sunset. Like this whole concept of retirement wasn't really a thing until the turn of the last century. Um, and and now we, I think we lose that purpose that you, that you referenced there. Um, you know, before it was like work, 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 and work was your identity, uh, till the land, produce the, the things, uh, and then become a guide and a mentor to those coming up behind you, right? But now, I don't think that our our industries, probably for sev- several generations now, have done a good job of bringing the retirees back in to shepherd the, 
the the new folks in. I like you don't see that in computers or manufacturing or sales. I mean, it's just like on to the next one, on to the next one. Get rid of the the high end salaries. You know, leaner, faster. Uh, I don't know. I'm just I'm just free thinking right now. I th- I think you're right. Is I mean, you look back from the industrial revolution on, and, and even I would I would say this is probably more prevalent in the tech revolution because it's such a changing field. Is like <clears throat> you're almost tossing your mentors away. It's like mm-hmm. okay, that, that's the software updates so quickly that you know uh, the person who was doing it before maybe that legacy or that dinosaur. So they devalue the knowledge that they're bringing there. But computer programming is computer programming is computer programming. It's just like us, you know, speaking Spanish or English. Is there some translation in there? But the skills and the core of the language are still present. And so I think it's from the Industrial Revolution on is is that it's like the ultimate thing is is as a human, I think, is to to get past that knowledge on. And when you when you take that away in some of these industries, like you say there, Jake, is like when that person who's hit the pinnacle cannot pass the knowledge on to those who are coming after them, then really you're just, you do, you feel like a throwaway at that point. Uh, I think there's some, some interesting parallel too, to like the, um, the drug revolution of the sixties and seventies where, um, children, you know, and I use that term loosely, it was, you know, the youth, right? Anybody under the age of like 25 or 30, was having these mind expanding experiences that put them in touch with, you know, greater consciousness that had previously taken many, 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 many years to achieve. And so you have youth leapfrogging in awareness, their, their elders, right? And that threatened the elders. They didn't know what to do with this uh, power differential now that's been inverted. Used to be old people teach young people stuff. Now young people are like, whoa, I, I get so much more than you get, you know, old man or whatever. And and that created a social conflict. I, I see the same thing in employment now where, especially with the computer industry, where you've got the pinnacle, right? The old person grinds it out, grinds it out, learns stuff, uh, hits some some pinnacle, but then young person comes on and just leapfrogs that pinnacle by by pushing the envelope higher, or climbing the mountain higher, and um, and now it, it renders it renders the power structure inverted. Right there's there's no more of a like a hierarchy of of learning and and tutelage and and shepherding of experience because like you say that that the software is updating so quickly that it's like yes. You know, yesterday's achievement is today's, um, you know, rearview mirror, and uh, and and I think that threatens a lot of identity issues and roles and the the places we we exist. So I, I don't know. Like we're talking, obviously, we're talking suicide intervention strategies and trying to wrap our heads around it. And I think there's a lot of desperation to be had in that realm. You know, that stands separate and apart from our run of the mill. You're struggling with depression or anxiety. It's like, yeah, but why? Is it always from generational upbringing, or could it could some of it be that you don't have a place in the world and you don't know where the, the place is going to be next because it's totally unpredictable? What twenty two year old is just going to pop out with some like brand new product and render your life's work irrelevant? Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's true, and I, I see these like these offensive things that are out there, like uh, you know the young young generation sometimes just with the uh, the response, "Okay, boomer." 
mm-hmm. like like that. It's like you're not even respecting what totally that person dismissive. has done. Yep. You're just like, okay, boomer. Like you're not even opening up that conversation. As soon as you say that, you're shutting it down. When maybe you can learn from that life perspective and that experience of the failure of that person who came before you. It's like be open-minded to listen to where they came from. Is like, yeah, we tried this with a different technology. It's like, okay, we may have been using you know, a hammer and a chisel, and now you're using a cell phone to do it. But you know what? The process and the principle are the same. It's it's like, hey, what I can teach you about this, you know, may apply to there. So you respect that person who's taken that journey before to get to the ultimate end goal. There's three books I want to recommend that I think you're tying to that actually tie into this conversation. There's one by Hayden Shaw. It's called Sticking Points, and it's called like Leading Through the Generations. So it really talks about these millennials, these Gen Ys, and these you know, and the boomers and everything. And like, what was the core value of that generation? Like, you look at the boomers. It's like this is the big like. Uh, a total war generation, folks coming from the 40s, the 50s, 60s, post-World War II, reconstruction of Europe, reconstruction of America. That's great. And then leading, like you said, Jake, the 60s and 70s to where it's like the period of self-discovery, the period of the summer of love. So we've got all these unique generations and it's how we can kind of come together and cross communicate. The other one that I, I like about uh, that you talk about uh, with the transition, with the, uh, everything, with the technology and everything uh, it ties into this, you know, everybody's watching this, the, the social dilemma on Netflix right now. I think there's a book that's better than it. It's by Adam Alter. It's called Irresistible. And it talks about addiction over time. And it talks about how technology has shaped addiction and has changed the human mind. And it goes from technology into like actual other devices and drugs and everything like that. And like what Adam Alter describes on there is just completely relevant. And it gets into it over time. So it's going it goes back throughout history uh, and it is just one of the most beautifully eye-opening things on like what we're doing and how these little devices, you know, are releasing serotonin and dopamine in these ways and everything. It's like, okay, you know, turning off your notifications because we're addicted to those dopamine hits and it's getting way above homeostasis to where like we're super saturated and like you almost need like an anti-dopamine receptor to bring you down because you're trying to gather too much attention. It's it's just mind-boggling um, and going on that. And then the last one, it's, um, it's called Transitions by William Bridges. And, and it talks a lot. And I've used that one for my own military transition. It, you know, uh, transitions, you know, taking care of life's changes. I have not found a, 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 a book that's written better about just transitioning in life, whether it's being from retiring from a career whether it's having a child, whether it's, you know, uh, getting in there, just the, the way it's written. I, I think everybody uh, could benefit from that, especially in the COVID era. So we're, we're all going through grief. We've, we're all going through change right now. Everybody's life has been impacted by this, is giving up this what we used to have. So if, if we can work through transitions and understand that the globe is grieving, The life we once lived is gone. It is not returning to that. I hate the term new normal. There's no such thing as, to me, there's nothing is normal about this. Uh, This is just a constant change and a constant flux. And it's how we respond to this change, this massive global change that can really impact. So you can either come out ahead and focus on gratitude and the positive on what's coming from this is maybe we've got some time back with our families. Maybe we've got this. Or you stay attached to the negative and you catastrophize everything that's going on in the world right now. 
I just say, turn the TV off and, and control what you can control in there. And then maybe you may come out better. And I, and that's where this all ties into suicide prevention is like some of this stuff that's going on in the world right now is actually helping us because we are connecting more with people. We are connecting more with our families. We are physically distant. We're not socially distant. And if we can kind of stay connected to each other, even through virtual formats like this, I think we may come out better in the long run. We got to allow for it to happen. Right now, I, I, there's there's so much. Um, I guess you could say, factioning. Uh, it's it makes it makes dialogue very challenging um, because I think <laughs> we get preloaded with these presumptions that, uh, again, going back to the identity thing, for some reason that keeps popping up. But when we label somebody Democrat, Republican, even Independent, it's like it. There's a presumption of knowing what to expect from that person and, and knowing them who they are in their entirety, which is simply untrue. Um, but for, I, I haven't I haven't wrestled with this enough yet. But I got to believe that, that that somewhere in there, we're being programmed with these labels to fundamentally assume we know what the person is going to do say or respond to whatever we bring and then we just don't engage because we've already mentally predicted the outcome anyway and it keeps it keeps us all like siloed and in, in our tribes and i don't mean like our human tribe i mean tribalism which um isn't isn't really good um but yeah, yeah i agree with you i agree with you 100 percent. we yeah we we can come out of this better go ahead mike sir no i was gonna say it's just uh it's it's incredible. <laughs> Used to not talk about politics, right? That was like a rule. Mm-hmm. Now everybody talks about politics, right? And everybody has their own little platform to talk about politics because of their social media. Um, now they have an audience, right? It's different. I was talking to my daughter about this the other day. Um, but what's, what I'm in this unique position because um, all my liberal friends think I'm a right-wing conservative and then all my conservative right-wing gun industry people always say that i'm the liberal <laughs> you know like i don't this is because i question everything just you know i challenge everything everybody says but well I as, think as if there's the, only two right also like as right. if there's only two <laughs> you're a crip yeah. you're a crip and, or a blood like that's it like there's no <laughs> you know you can't can't think for yourself you got to pick one side and go with it but it's that I see is a major issue right now with the way we're communicating because I feel I feel like everybody always wants to bring up politics. Yeah, they they do, and it's either like you're with me or you're against me. Is I see a lot of that. It's like you either support me, otherwise, no, I don't disagree, and then they shut you down. Or um, you know, critical thinking is a miss right now. I really think so. Is dialogue, debate. I mean, it's 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 evident. It's. We've got two parties that don't want to debate against one another. Debate is the foundation of politics. Like, if you cannot openly debate and openly communicate and discuss, then how are we better? It's eventually, like, I, th- I think we can find compromises to where it's win-win for everybody. It's not about one-upping somebody else. It's like, you know, it's what's best for the most amount of people. Like, what is best for society? And I think we're missing that a lot lately. It's like, what is best for the majority? Uh, yeah, you know, to, to Mike's point about everybody's talking about politics, used to be nobody talks about it. The problem is we're not talking about it. We're, we're shouting. We're, and we're not even shouting with insistence based on well-reasoned theory, uh, let alone evidence-based practice. We're shouting talking points. And and, and it's like, and to, to your point, Chris, like... I, I've been, I, 
I've been made nauseated. I've sorry, I have been nauseated by the amount of times I've heard the phrase win. We must win. We're winning. They're winning. This is how we win. It's like it's not a zero sum game. If if one side or the other, we'll just pretend that we're in this like two sides thing. If one side wins, that what does that mean? Does it mean they advance an agenda that's better for everybody? I guess through their lens they think so. Um, but in the end, if all you've done is push away fifty percent, we'll just call it forty six percent of the people who didn't think that it was a win, did you really win? You know, like I, I and I don't know how we get back to that unless like. Millions and millions and millions of us start having more of these conversations, and we just choose differently at the at the ballot box. I don't I don't know because right now I'm not seeing a lot of that. I'm seeing a lot of the the we must win, they must lose. It's like, well, who is they? Who are we? <laughs> it's it's weird. There's monolithic uh, ide- ideas of what these people are. It's like, dude, they're they're nuanced, and a lot of it's gray, and we're all very complex. Mm. Yeah, lacking nuance is probably the best way to describe what's happening. You know, and today I got two daughters. I, I I try to stay apolitical with everything. I I don't. I always try to tell them the consequence or here's why people think this. And it's funny. One of them is super liberal, and mm. the other one is super conservative. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they're co- they they're conscious of it. You know what I mean? When I was a kid, I didn't know what I yeah. was. Yeah. Now my my son he's six and this this weekend you know because he'll talk about stuff and I'll I'll talk about things and watch the news at home and he's like he's six and he knows Donald Trump has the coronavirus so like what six year old like back when I don't know when we were young would like care and know like you know about the president having this thing and then openly talking about it it's that's just it's just crazy to see that and how our children receive information and form their own opinions, even at, as teenagers or, or six, you know, a first grader these days is, um, I just keep repeating to them is, you know, I don't, I want you to form your own opinions, but I want you to be the best human being that you can be and give compassion to others. And I, as any lesson we can teach is this shouldn't be a competition because there shouldn't be any losers in here, but it feels that way. It's like we're, we're, we're dividing ourselves, like you said, Jake, and we, and we don't need to. It should be like, what is best for America? What is best for the human race versus I won? Okay, like you said, what do we get? Well, 46, you know, 51% won. That means there's 49% of losers out there. You know, that can be 150 some odd million people in this country would be considered losers. What, what did we lose? Like we lost our identity. Uh, maybe we lost maybe the, the reason why it's like, no, just respect each other's opinions. Like, can, can we just agree to disagree sometimes again? Like, like what happened to that? Yeah. The, the insistence on being right, I think is, um, has taken over now and, and that's a shame. And, and, you know, if we, before we dive too far into this rabbit hole i think we want to circle it back around to why this is mentally impacting our citizenry right when you're when you're forced to choose um and and nuance is lacking and people i I just saw a twitter exchange now in which i was involved by pure accident two guys i've known from high school forever um where it was like Here's the one issue that I'm taking an issue with, and that's why it's us versus them. It's like, well, yeah, but that's one issue among a whole pantheon of issues. Um, it makes me, as the recipient of that, go, 
so so you're forcing me to to choose a side based on this singular thing. Why? Where where does that leave me? It leaves me homeless. You know, uh, politically, um, it's it gets getting into spiritual too, <laughs> like spiritually homeless. Uh, like what what is going to be the one thing that transcends? all this nonsense. Um, I, you know, I, obviously I'd like to say Jesus, but, um, like what, what are we going to find that's going to bring people together instead of push them apart when ego has, has run amok and is now demanding that it be fed? Like the ego is like, I must, I must win. I must demonstrate that I'm in charge. Uh, whereas the self, the true self in a Jungian analytic sense is like just totally been forgotten. And that's the thing that transcends. That's the one that says, get out of your own way and help an, a fellow neighbor. Um, give of self freely, knowing that it'll be returned. You know, like it's like we've forgotten that. It's like we've lost our faith it, that we will be okay if we just like dial it back a notch and um, help other people. It's like, well, if you help someone, you're giving away your own resources. Like you're missing the point. <laughs> and, and we're all now falling into that. And it's so unfortunate. And I think it's pushing people to anxiety, to depression, because I don't want to lose my friends over one singular issue. I don't want to lose my tribe. Um, it's, it just doesn't, it hurts, you know, our poor aching country. It, it hurts. You know, uh, you had a lot of phrases in there, and this is a good segue into what we were talking <laughs> about before the show started. Um, a lot of the things he just said, I was like, that would be a good song, or that would be a good title yeah. for a song. Um, Our Poor Aching Country. <laughs> yeah. just, you said a bunch of them, but... There's a slide like, guitar that's one thing in that one, I'm sure. No, but before we started, you we were talking about music, and I'm, I'm music helps me with my mental health. It really does. I'm very attuned to lyrics. I've always said that rock music to me, uh, you know, there's so much emotion in there that it conveys the message so well. Whether you like hip hop or R and B, but um, tell me a little bit about talk about what you were talking about before the music thing. Yeah, so a lot of my healing has come through uh, heavy music. Is you look at you look at the exterior of me, and I, you wouldn't suspect I would listen to like death metal and and heavy rock and like that and everything. But I, I find that that genre of music there alone um, really does a good job in expressing the darkest side of human nature. So we've you know I, I've often said they scream so I don't have to. And it's because it's just raw emotion that's out there. It's this release. And listening to bands and going going back just through heavy music, you know, we talk about like Black Sabbath and coming out there. We talk about Iron Maiden, you know, and they get on some really deep subjects. Uh, and I think modern heavy music has really come into its own as I'm finding love with like bands like Lamb of God and Kill Switch Engage and... Um, Saul and Disturbed and you could I mean I could rattle off bands forever uh, and artists forever but they really are addressing like the darkest side of the human soul from substance abuse to addiction to suicide loss to you know weaponry to warfare and everything like that and I found this appreciation um, so I, I need to backtrack a little bit is you know I didn't tell most of my story when I first came in here but serving in the Air Force and in, in, um in July of 2017, I lost my brother, Lance Corporal Adam Jackmick, to uh, suicide. He, uh, he was in the Marines himself, and we in transition, he struggled a lot. I was in a uh, senior leadership position in the Air Force called the First Sergeant at the time to where my job was really to take care of the people. 
So when my, when my personnel suffered is I would be the one that would escort them to psychiatric treatment facilities, mental health hospitals. I'd be there um, visiting with them, consulting with their clinicians down there, uh, and then picking them up and um, when they were discharged from said facilities and getting them into treatment team meetings and everything like that. So that was a large part of my job. And some things that I struggled with was um, I could help save others, um, but I couldn't save my own brother when the time came to it. But I found a lot of healing through music um, through there is, you know, uh, we, I would come back. Um, I was in Alabama when he passed at the Air Force Senior NCO Academy. So I wasn't even home. My parents were out here in Las Vegas spending some time with my children at the time. So they got the news delivered. Um, fortunately, my unit was able to, uh, my, my unit was able to respond to my home and take care of my father. So I belong to the, uh, the 58th rescue squadron at the time, the pararescue unit. And their motto there is these things we do that others may live. And, and just the appreciation that they have is cause I took care of them so well during their darkest times that they were there for my family and their moniker is the guardian angel. So, um, I really attuned to this unit. They came back, they took care of my father, the flight medic, you know, I told him my dad had some, you know, some health problems The the docs took care of him. And there were like 50 plus people at my home that night while I was getting ready to fly back from Afghanistan. Uh, my commander at the time, like I got back, I was supposed to be gone. He's like, take as much time as you need. Just check in with me daily. I know what's going on. So I got to go back to, uh, you know, Wisconsin for the funeral. But the first heavy metal show that I saw after my brother passed was Slayer, Lamb of God, and Behemoth. And there's this song by Lamb of... And Randy Bly from Lamb of God really is uh, attuned to me. He has his own autobiography out there called Dark Days. So he was performing a, a show in the Czech Republic and a fan died. So he was charged with manslaughter during that time frame. And he actually spent... Um, almost a year in Pankirk prison in the Czech Republic. And it was this most brutal place ever. So he's got this song called 512. And that's the cell number that he had when he was in this prison going through all this. Um, And the lyrics to this is my hands are painted red. And so he talks about these cells, like these four walls across the sky and this deep reflection when he was in solitary confinement, you know, in there in Pankirk prison on a crime that he really didn't commit because it was an unsafe venue. And just hearing that and coming back to see how he persevered through that darkest time in his life in a prison cell in a foreign country and then was able to get back on stage and writes this song 512 uh, that comes and is just like, look, here I am. Like Randy's a true inspiration. Like he learned to get sober. He got his guitarist sober. He got people away from the drug and the abuse. And he sings and talks about this. Uh, my favorite song by them is it ta- actually talks about the Iraq war and it's called now we've got, now I've got something to die for. So the purpose on there is I just listen to that song and I listen to Randy belt out these lyrics. Now you've got something to die for. Like that's just deep and purpose. It's like live your life that you want to give your life for something. And he gets up there and sings it on stage. And when I heard that song that night, I threw down. Like in the pit, I just threw down because I needed to let that emotional release happen because that was the connection there. And I felt Randy and I felt that. Um, Lamb of God would be the the last show I would see at the outdoor venue across the street from Mandalay Bay as well too. So being a resident in Las Vegas, like there's this deep soul connection um, that I have with just a lot of things and I'm very in tune with that. Um, 
after my brother passed, D- Disturbed is one of my big favorite bands as well, too. Uh, being a member of the Rescue Squadron, we had some unique opportunities. When I talk about the hideout here in Las Vegas and, and you know, joke about that studio earlier on is uh, they filmed their recent album Evolution uh, and recorded it here in Henderson, Nevada. During that time frame is uh, they came out to Nellis and they performed the show. But a couple of weeks before that is uh, I got to fire some grenade launchers and some heavy weaponry with David Draymond, uh, Dan Donegan and, and Mike from Disturbed because they were out here. and We wanted to give them a good time. Uh, little did I know that two songs off of that album would like change my life forever. So there's two videos that they talk about, and you can see this and watch it on their website. There's a song that they wrote during this time frame that they were out here in Las Vegas called A Reason to Fight. And it's just something that's powerful. It's like getting there and giving your life a reason to fight, a reason to go on. That song in the video talks about substance abuse, about mental health, about suicide. And it shows that how the power of music can come to connect us together. Where heavy music can bring us together. Whether it's just in the crowd, whether it's in the audience, whether it's belting out those lyrics to the songs. Maybe that's why I love the circle pit because of the energy that it brings and crashing bodies together because you're all enamored in the music and everything like that. And the other one is, um, is hold on the memories. So there's two songs on that album that I'm deeply attuned to that they filmed here in Las Vegas. One of the greatest bands and, um, just firing weapons with, with David Draymond was a really cool experience. Cause I would joke with him. I was like, Hey, when you pull the trigger on here, you got to go, Ooh, wah. Because that's the only way it's going to happen. It's like, and, and we're sitting on the range. It's like, you have to do the monkey scream because I want to hear you do the monkey scream when you fire an automatic weapon. And just the fact that I got to connect with those guys on that day. I came to find out that Dan Donegan lived in the same neighborhood that my grandparents lived in in Illinois. And so we started to talk about familiar places. We started to talk about the Little Red Schoolhouse. So the connection to the music, the connection to others, the connection to that, and the beauty of the songs that they wrote. Um, I don't know how you describe that power. To me, that's spiritual. To me, that's, this is why I love heavy music so much, is because it's a much deeper connection that, than just some chords and some lyrics. And it helped me get through some very dark and troubling times in my life. How do you know so much about the the metal scene have you just been plugged into it for a really long time yeah i have it's like it's a way of life for me Hmm. it's um you know i started uh i started rejecting like pop music and listening to metal when i was young like 1996 that was the first time i saw metallica with like corrosion of conformity and jerry cantrell of alice in chains and then i just kind of did this deep dive into it i think it was the late the late 90s that really changed me is uh discovering myself at the same time that I was just kind of discovering this music. So you had corn coming out at that time, you know, really hitting it big. That's when the, uh, that's when the follow the leader album came out and was just really crushing it on MTV, like got the life, you know, and freak on a leash. Um, I saw like seven dust on their first album. I still have the shirt hanging up in my, in my closet. It says 1997, seven dust has arrived. And I'm like, I look at this and I see the evolution of Seven Dust. And I think I just came because I see their struggles and I could relate to what they were going through and the music just called to me. Um, And I found a lot of, I really enjoyed live music and concerts. 
and just being present. And there's just something about that, uh, something about that shared and that lived experience of live music that really got you going. Um, 9-11 too. Um, so I, my, September 29th is my birthday. I was about to turn 21 right after 9-11. And this is when, um, this is when heavy music was really coming in. I think it's the military. Like we just get attuned to heavy music, you either love country or you love heavy music in the military. I mean, there's, there's one or the other. It's, it's, you're not, you're kind of, you're kind of there. Um, but like weeks before in August is, this is when Slipknot released the Iowa album. And it's, to me, it's the most angry and violent album I've ever heard in my life. And maybe that's what I needed at that time with all the grief I was going through. And then 9-11 happens. I was due to see Slipknot, System of a Down, and Mudvayne on my 21st birthday down at the LA Forum. Uh, And then, you know, okay, that trip gets canceled because the world changed. But luckily, like two days later, they played the Thomas and Mack Center out here in Vegas. And, you know, I got to hear this song. uh, Yeah. just that experience of the healing. And I don't know why, like when I'm going through grief and I'm going through tough times is I fall back on music. You know, I, I consistently fall back on music. There's, there's something really important. I want everybody to, to pay attention to here. Uh, Cause in, in the clinical world, we often hear stories about clients who connect through, through songs, right. And songs are really just a little more animated poetry. Um, and poetry has been around for a zillion years, as long as mankind, I think what it is, 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 is humankind's honest attempt to convey deep psychic, and I don't mean psychic, like read your mind, um, palm reader stuff, although that could also be true in a different way. Um, but I'm talking about the psychological psychic energy, deep, deep stuff shifts that are occurring in their soul that they can't quite articulate with common language so so what do we do we put it we put words to it but that's insufficient then we put some music to it uh and that sort of paints a better picture and then if we can push that out to people and they go yeah that resonates with me too and i don't really know why um it's so much deeper than just the what our feeble language can can communicate people end up connecting very very deeply um some folks find themselves falling into the lyrics so far that they almost like lose themselves, uh, not to quote Eminem, but, but you do like you lose yourself in it. And, um, and that can be both, uh, frightening and highly beneficial. Um, because when you, when you lose touch with what you think is reality, which is the ego or the dissolution of the ego, you end up diving into something that, um, is very, foreign and frightening because it represents all that is and could be and that's great and terrible right all that could be great and all that could be terrible and most of us just don't want to go there we don't want to acknowledge that we have great violent tendencies we'd love for the idea of acknowledging that we have great capacity to to perform good deeds but we don't want to look at the other side and that's what Jung would call the shadow aspect and there's there's two sides of that shadow too there's the golden shadow where we go oh I could never do that meaning we just write off potential accomplishments because we think we're incapable and then there's the oh i could never do that which is the the bad stuff we don't want to think we're capable of um so music i think gives us this ability to to connect in a different way uh with other humans and it enhances the and augments the human experience um christian conti big mentor friend of mine uh he's he's long said that um, the human capacity is infinite, and that's a Jungian, uh, Freudian thing too. If we're truly infinite in our capacity, that means that 
you, me, Mike, everybody, everybody has infinite capacity to do stuff. So we don't want to just evaluate people on their outward behaviors or their presentations. Uh, We want to look past that. And in doing so, what we do is we see some of ourselves because we're all we're all interconnected. Um, I love that you brought that up. I love that you're sharing this because it's um, it, it is profound and it can be quite therapeutic and healing, especially in a time of division like like we are all facing now. You know, it's it's scary out there. Um, I think if we if we get in touch a little bit deeper and get away from the surface, we could all benefit. Music's a great way to do that. Do you play? Yeah, and the, by the way? and the beauty of heavy music too is like you know I I got in the pit a lot and there it's a brotherhood. It's mm. like okay, yeah, you're there, you're letting out aggression, but you know what happens when when somebody gets knocked down in the pit? You're picking them right back up. Like there's that etiquette of there. It's like you're enjoying the experience so much. It's like you're giving hugs at the end of the time. Like dude, that was such a badass set, man. You crushed it out there. And then you're sweating it out. And you get these dudes who aren't wearing deodorant. And and gals as well, too. Like, gals are getting in the pit, like, nowadays. And, like, at the end of the show, like, when the band comes and gives their final bow, like, you're hugging it out with your brothers. You don't even care what they look like. You don't care what race, what creed, there's, you know, where they're coming from, what background they are. You're just hugging it out. And I've seen this beauty not only here in the U.S., but I would attend metal festivals in Europe when I was stationed there. And the same thing would happen in foreign countries. The same thing happened in Korea in 2007 when I saw Nine Inch Nails for the first time they ever played Seoul. And here I am hugging it out with a whole bunch of Koreans because they just played Terrible Lie and they ended it. And it's just like, yeah, you got to appreciate what it does just to bring people together. It brings out the best in people. It transcends culture. And it transcends tribes, really. Um, it's a cathartic emotional release that we all need from time to time. Um, do you play? Do you do music? I, I used to. I would, I would play bass for a while. Um, I've actually gotten on stage and I, I've sung a few times. I, so my nephew, as I call him, he had a local band out here. Uh, and they actually opened for the Lost Rages Festival one year. They had won a battle of the bands. So uh, I got on, on stage at Cowabunga Bay one day and sang Pantera songs with them. Uh, so that's kind of my passion. And But I would do this. So I, I would do it more karaoke style. Like I like the singer. I like getting that out. Uh, when I was deployed to Afghanistan, we kind of had this contest out there and we, it was karaoke. And so I would sing, I would sing heavy metal on stage in the middle of Afghanistan during a karaoke contest. So I'd sing like, uh, I sing drowning pool bodies. And then I'd sing like Pantera. Uh, there's some video out on the internet of me doing this, but it would like bring people together and like, that's unique. That's different. It's not somebody just getting up here and singing, you know, sweet Caroline. It's somebody getting out here and just screaming into a microphone. Uh, so I think I've always been attuned to that like if in another life if i could and maybe this is still my dream i would love to be a front man of a heavy metal band did anybody ever uh, form a pit when you were singing karaoke yes at bagram airfield in afghanistan yes and also uh <laughs> out at cowabunga bay there's the video my my son he was like four at the time he was doing a circle pit on the grass grass there so like you know you hit it big when somebody actually moshes to your music that's like that's the ultimate sign of respect for a heavy music because you could see a lot of places they go. You're the opening band. People just stand there and listen. But if they're in tune with if they're in tune with your music so much that it makes you want to move, I think that's the next step. Is so first it gets implanted in your brain. Like you have this emotional response to the music. You either like it, you dislike it, or not. But then if it moves you to movement, 
then I think you know that your music has connected with somebody. So, like, you look at these massive festivals out there, like, they call it the wall of death, or you look at these tornado circle pits that go on, and it's like, that's just powerful. Uh, one of my favorite bands as well is called Parkway Drive. They're out of Australia. They've got such a great story that they came up. Um, but but they've got this song called Dedicated, and it talks about, like, 10 years of struggle in their life. And as soon as that hits, and you just see people crashing into each other, you're just like, yep. Uh, I, you can't even describe it. It's it's just it's beauty. It's just pure beauty that that energy has transferred from the band to the audience to crashing into others, and it's just this massive transfer of energy that happens. And I think it reciprocates back to the band. So they see this energy when they're watching there. It makes them push harder. The harder they push, the more energy they put into the crowd. And it creates just this beautiful energy that gives back and this power that brings us together through connectedness. And so when we talk about suicide prevention, I think it's really connectedness that matters. It's the more we isolate and the more we're disconnected, that leads us on the path to depression, despair, and suicide. So we can connect more as a species, as we connect more with our families, connect more with other things to things that are greater than us. Maybe we can kind of get past the scourge of suicide. I don't think we can completely solve it. I think it's an inherent human issue. I think it's an inherent actual creature issue. Because if you look at other species, there are other species who do uh, take their own lives. It's not just a human issue. Uh, you go back to ancient times and you look at some of these statesmen. I think of like the ancient Romans, you know, um, you know, Cicero pondered it, you, you know, Cato when he was up against that. Um, even you talk about Mark Antony and Cleopatra, you know, thinking about this when they're at their wits ends and they, they see no way out. They see no way out of despair. They see no future. They see no hope that this is the brain's mechanism of shutting down. Is it preventable? I absolutely think so. But I think it takes that connectedness more than anything than some of these tricks that we're doing. Um, is there some sensitivity when it comes to guns? Yeah, a- absolutely, I think. But I think we do some things wrong with, with veterans is that's the first thing we reach towards is we go to that as somebody that's been trusted and trained for such a period of time to where you want to take something that's ingrained to their soul and to their life and what they've been entrusted with and trained for over such a long period of time. And then you want to remove something from somebody. I think removing things does a lot of harm as well, too. 100%. That's that's really what Walk the Talk America is all about. I tell people all the time, we might not bring suicide numbers down, but we could definitely take a shot at bringing the numbers of suicide by firearm down, right? Yeah. And connecting people to the help they need in a time of crisis without fear of consequence is a huge, huge thing for me because that's really what it is. Um you know, I started to, I, I, I came into this with just, you know, I was super naive, but I did start to realize like, hey, people really value their Second Amendment right and their firearm. They treat it like family, right? So, and, it, and, it, and it's something that calms them. It's, it's something that people like to do, they like to go to the range and shoot. Um, most people can't understand that. Like when someone says, hey, I, I was feeling, I had some anxiety today. I went to the range and I shot off a thousand rounds. That's a normal thing. And people need to understand that. Yeah, trigger therapy, as I call it sometimes as well, too. But And then you get military members or, or those in the law enforcement community. You know, our oath of enlistment. 
I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That includes the Second Amendment. That includes that right to be able to bear arms without infringement. And, and as soon as we want to go there and we get into some of the constitutional stuff about the right to bear arms, then it creates this difficult conversation because for a lot of us who serve, is that's our soul. It's like we live that. That is a... The Constitution to us is a core value. So anytime you go against our core value, uh, then we feel like we've been wronged, especially if you're going to take it to the extreme edge. So what are the innovative solutions that are out there that can be like where we bridge the gap where we meet people halfway? And I think a lot of people are coming to it is like, you know, don't, you know, find these protective measures that are out there. You know, I, I've seen some steps to where some people say, hey, look, look on the hand grips, maybe put the put the suicide prevention line with a picture of your family member on there or something like that, that you really trust. It's like, you know, what's going to bring you back from that, uh, you know, maybe that impulsive decision, maybe that decision where you're not in your, your right headspace at the time. And that's what you reach for because it's safety and protection. Like what's, what can you do that slows down that decision process? Uh, and there's some good people out there that are having this discussion, like, like yourselves. It's like, don't immediately reach for it and take it away. Find something to where you can meet them halfway, whether it's, okay, let's let's lock it or let's store it safely with, with somebody. Let's let's talk about that. Or my, my friend, Dr. Shauna Springer, um, she's big in the suicide postvention. Uh, she was a Marine doc for many years and counsels that. She came up with this project called the Warrior Box, where it's like you get an ammo can and at the bottom is the key. At the bottom is the key to the lock. But on top of everything on that is all the things that you find important. So like there are pictures of your loved ones. There's letters from your battle buddies in there. There's letters from this. There's like enlistment documents. There's medals that you may have from military service on there. So if you get that and you get in the deep, such the deep reflection that it slows down that decision process and it brings you to look at things that are good in your life. Uh, and then at the bottom, like, okay, that's kind of the fail safe. It's like, it's all the way at the bottom. It's let's put, let's pile the good stuff up on top to eliminate kind of the negative thoughts that are permeating at the bottom. And if we can do that, if we can, if we can do that to where we can make the brain focus on that, then, then maybe we can save some others because uh, there's, we all know the decision process is pretty swift. Chris, you, you mentioned postvention and that's probably a, a phrase that most people are not familiar with. We, we hear a lot about prevention, right? Prevention is the, the buzzword of everything. Um, for, for all things that we, we don't like, right? Prevent cancer, prevent diabetes, prevent suicide. Um, there's three stages really when we're talking about this. There's prevention, intervention, and postvention. Intervention is right in the moment uh, when somebody's considering suicide and we, we want to intervene. Uh, prevention is what we, we know about, all those protective factors. Let's build it up. Let's remove the risk factors. But then postvention is where you do a lot of your work. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because... Um, not only is it unique and not a lot of people are working in that realm, we're going to try to do that with our, with our courses that we offer. But, um, the ripple effect following a suicide is, is tremendous. It's, um, it affects a lot of people. And then, um, all too frequently we end up having, it's almost like a permission granting when somebody takes a life, you know, takes their own life. It almost gives permission to somebody else to go, well, okay, I guess I could do it too. And, and we don't want that ripple effect either. We don't need more deaths and more rippling, right? So um, there's there's kind of a twofold, um, 
I, there's probably more than two, but there's there's at least two clear folds here that I can see. One is prevent more deaths after the first death that creates the ripple. And then how do we reconnect people who are grieving following the, the initial incident? Yeah, Jake, you touch on that. Is there's, uh, you know, the concept of contagion after, after a suicide loss is, uh, you know, there is data out there that suicide loss survivors, <clears throat> especially those deeply connected to the one that you lost, are at a significantly greater risk for suicide themselves. Especially children, is, too. Adolescents oh, and Oh, completely. Yeah. And, and that's a... That's an issue uh, to tackle on a much higher level. Is our, our children are really struggling right now? You know, it's the number it's the number two cause of death across the nation for our youth. It's actually, I believe, it's the number one cause of death for children in Nevada uh, from age Correct. eleven to twenty one. Uh, I think eleven or thirteen. It's and, and so that's pretty alarming um, that we have children that are considering taking their own lives, um, and just a reflection of our society. But in in postvention is you know it's. It's what to do after, uh, for, unfortunately, we do lose people to suicide. You know, it's, it's a fact. It's one of the top 10 leading causes of death in America. It is the least, out of the top 10, it receives the least funding out of anything is prevention measures. So everything else is, you've got other diseases and everything that receive tenfold funding that are well below it, uh, but we don't address it from, from that level. But, but what postvention is, is it's really caring for those that um, have been, connected to that individual or group of individuals that have lost somebody to suicide because it, it is a traumatic loss. It's, um, it comes, it goes, there's a lot of misunderstanding by it. And I think it's, it, it's rooted in some of our cultural values on why we struggle with it so much. It's rooted in uh, religious uh, texts and, and, and some of the things that uh, presumptions about religion that are there, that this is uh, maybe a sin, depending on the religion um, that you believe in. And so there's a lot of guilt, there's a lot of shame, and there's a lot of wild emotions that come along with it. Uh, society on bereavement as well alone is like, you know, get over it, get over this loss, do this, is okay. You, did you know there's a national policy written or labor laws that only allows for like three days of bereavement leave, you know, uh, and then four days if it's out of state, you know, th so America, we put a timeline on grief based upon legislation and, and legal stuff for that. Uh, what happened the morning where it would be the, you know, a widow would wear black for an entire year or something like that. And you would go through this period of mourning. And I think there's, there's two distinct things there. Uh, on on postvention, it's probably the least talked about um, side of suicide prevention. You know, postvention is prevention. Is um, the lost survivors, and I would even I would include the attempt survivors in there as well. To somebody that has survived that, because and that's a, a way smaller, smaller demographic that we haven't even cracked yet. But the lost survivors is, you know, we understand like we've been this. Um, when you lose somebody, you start to go through and start to ask the why and start to ask these questions. And then you start to peel back this onion. Uh, it really kind of, you know, there's the life before the suicide loss and there's the life after the suicide loss. And it can be, it's very difficult to process because you, you get on this path you're like you wish you could have intervened like you wish you knew what was going on in their head you you wish you could have done more uh when, when you have something like cancer or heart disease like do you wish you cooked less cheeseburgers or you wish you took them out of this environment you know, so it's the one disease that we guilt trip and we shame and we criminalize people over is is mental health and suicide uh, 
So in, in this work is uh, I've been connected to a lot of other survivors. I think from the connective standpoint is survivors get other survivors is we've been able to hold and find safe space for others to be able to talk about our loved ones openly and about the struggles we've had through that. So there's this movement across the nation and it's led by like um, the American Association for Suicidology, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and in the military, uh, the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, where it's survivors coming together and discuss these terms to where um, we can make it better for those who are no longer around. We honor and and hold space uh, for them. And uh, the term that I like using all the time is we remember the dash, is we remember how they lived, not the way they were, not when they were born or not the way that they died, is we want to remember that. And it takes place in three threefold. So I like to quote the, the TAPS prevention model because it's a national standard. Uh, a lot of the other big organizations like Mental Health America, uh, NAMI, um, you name it, it all kind of fall back onto the TAPS model. And and that is at the beginning is you want to stabilize the lost survivor. You want to answer those questions about being there and just being present, you know, talking through the whys, talking through the, I wouldn't even call it the cycle of grief. I would call it the spaghetti bowl of grief because that, when you think about grief is and you put it in there and you put some sauce on top of it and other ingredients, that's what it really looks like. It's not linear at all. It looks like a mess of pasta. Uh, and that's the really, to me, that's the best way to describe it. So you got to stabilize them first. You got to stabilize a lost survivor first, and then maybe you can get into the grief work. So once that becomes, and then once the grief work is done and you start working through the loss, you start working through the way you want to remember your loved one. Then we come into this concept that uh, Tedeschi coined called post-traumatic growth. You start meaning making about, you know, how can I best honor my loved one? How can I grow from this? It's like, what can I do to cherish their life and make sure that their memory isn't forgotten? And I think that's the beauty of TAPS is... um, we see that hand in the hand out. And where I like this is, is I, I think they get it right because they don't discriminate. So they're, if you've lost a battle buddy, they've got a group for a battle buddy. If you've lost a sibling, a brother or sister, they have that. If you've lost a grandchild to suicide, they've got that. If you've lost a parent, if you've lost a son, if you've lost a daughter. So they take care of everybody. And then sure, we'll get into our little subsets there because me as a brother, my grief is different than say a parent that lost their son. I can relate to, uh, I can relate to a sibling better because for me, when I lost my brother, I lost my past, I lost my present, and I lost my future. I lost my first best friend. And so that's very difficult to process because that person has been with you for such a long period in time. All I knew was my brother for 34 years, 34 years. I have a 34 year connection with him. He will forever be 34. And so for siblings, it's a little bit different. And I could say the same thing for parents, grandparents, sons and daughters. It's like TAPS does a good job in holding, holding space for that. And so how do we develop postvention programs across the nation? Um, I think survivors have to be open with it. You know, Let's not glamorize it. Let's not romanticize it. But let's like let's openly discuss it. That it's okay to to discuss this is um, to be there for one and then bring that, bring that connective piece back together. You uh, you touched on something there about um, holding the space, um, stabilizing the person, then reco- you know, helping them recover. Uh, I think 
I think we as clinicians are pretty poor at that. We want to we want to jump right in and start healing right away and we forget that people are in the middle of crisis still. And um I had a podcast just this past week with a gal from uh Maryland who's a clinician and um she's a black lady. We were talking cultural stuff and she says, "I don't know that you can consider yourself um really well tuned and in the um in the in the trauma world if you don't attend to somebody's generational trauma as it impacts them by their race and i was like wow that's really profound and it hit me very differently we have all these like trauma informed trainings but are we really learning about um the historic trauma of somebody with dark pigmentation in this country because they they get they get it from all sides for for life, right? And most of us in my field are are white because we just we come from a an Eastern European psychology background. That's just where the field originated. And so, who gravitates to that? Well, people who look like us and think like us. Thanks, right? Sigmund Freud. Right. Thank you, Sigmund Freud. Totally, totally. Jung, Adler, um, all all the 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 people. You know, Carl, Carl Rogers. I mean, there's a bunch of white guys, and um, and I think similarly for for suicide postvention. I don't know that you can consider yourself a, a trauma-informed clinician, and I don't know that you can really consider yourself a suicide-trained uh, person if you don't know the aftermath piece of it. And that, that just struck me differently. It's, it's amazing how uh, things line up uh, coincidentally or synchronous uh, in, in life. Or just a week ago, I had a, a different conversation about a different topic, but the, the theme was the same. It's like, are you really competent in this area? because you took a few courses or can you go a little deeper? And I think we can all stand to go a little deeper. So if you're a clinician listening to this and you're like, yeah, yeah, suicide, suicide. I know about suicide. It's like, yeah, how much do you know about postvention? How much do you know about the, the, the crisis that's still ongoing, even though weeks have passed? You're like, well, the crisis is over, right? They cleaned up the mess and they had the funeral. It's like, no, no, not really. You know, we don't want to just push people through life because it leaves that that residue unattended. And if if we don't take care of that residue, it builds and it and it grows and it festers. And um, we need to slow things down. I think. Thank you for that. you know. And the one thing I, that I think gets done wrong in suicide prevention all the time is when we lose somebody to suicide, especially in the military. We want to go back to the prevention training. Yeah. We want to put assist or safe talk in front of the face, and and uh, to me, that actually does more harm than good. Because then you start really digging in and it's like, okay, I missed this sign. I missed this. Right. And then it guilts you even deeper because it's like, what did I do that didn't didn't go? No, we need to do postvention. Uh, there's some training available on postvention uh, that my dear friend Kim Ruoko uh, put together and, and same with Dr. Springer. Uh, it talks about unit stabilization after a suicide loss. And so um, I've got some of my dear friends in there. I'm going to mention them uh, because I've connected with them. There's, uh, there's John Gaines, and then there's also uh, Dana O.B. O'Brien. Uh, John Gaines, an airman himself, he lost his airman son. And then O.B., uh, a Marine, a hardcore Marine himself, um, talks about the loss of his grandchild through suicide. So hearing this through the lens of, of them uh, on that and my dear friends Kim and Dr. Springer, you know, Psych Armor and TAPS are doing it right when it comes to these are the things we should be looking at. This is the language that we should be using, um, not to use this. I don't like like the term should because we shouldn't go shitting all over everybody. Um, but the, the training really kind of helps and gets you in this perspective and opens up your, your eyes. And um, from clinicians is I would implore you to, to take these two courses 
I would also implore you to look at uh, Dr. Alan Wolfelt, where a lot of the training comes from, his Center for Loss in Colorado, where he really talks about bereavement and everything. Is uh, He's one of, one of the few in this nation that has uh, really done it well. Uh, Dr. Ken Doka, as well, is another one that just talks about loss. And then uh, my, my big mentor outside of Doc Springer in uh, – in, in suicide loss and, and uh, Dr. Thomas Joyner. I know a lot of people talk about, you know, talk about Dr. Thomas Joyner because he's kind of the father of postvention and, you know, his book, Why People Die by Suicide uh, is, uh, is a must read for every clinician out there. But there's a gentleman out, out of uh, uh, LSU University, Go Tigers. Um, his name is Dr. Frank Campbell and he runs the NTSC, which is the National uh, Training Center for Suicide Postvention. And he's got 20, 30 plus years of experience on this. And basically he helped develop the curriculum for a lot of these places on there. This is a genuine human being that really knows talking about suicide postvention. So these are some of the subject matter experts across the country that I would consult with and really take their trainings because uh, I think every clinician should be trained in suicide postvention. I think every social worker should be trained in it um, just to understand that because you could go back you know what? Uh, for me, when I lost my brother, cognitive behavior therapy just did, didn't work. It's like, okay, that no, it's it's trauma and grief. And so you have to address the two separately. Work on the trauma, work on the traumatic side of the loss, but work on the grief as well. Um, so mental, mental health worked okay, but it took me a while to find a clinician that truly understood me. Uh, it's like used car shopping. You got to find the one that's going to be right for you. It's I tell this to all my people all the time. It's like, don't just pick your first clinician. Treat it like you're going car shopping. It's like, it may not work. You may not like the stick shift. You want a, you want a manual, but they're giving you an automatic, uh, you know, um, going like that. But uh, to kind of circle back a little bit, it's for me, it wasn't just talking to a clinician. It's I had to change other things. Is you know, I found that movement, like physical activity, was a lot of good for my grief. So I got into cycling again. I got back to martial arts. You know, I had a strong martial arts connection with my brother. We did Taekwondo, so I got back into Taekwondo. And then I found these other sports. I'm doing it re- uh, more recently, and, and Mike and I were talking about it here, is a, a connection that he knows is I started to get into kettlebells and the mindfulness that it takes to do some kettlebell tossing and some kettlebell workouts. And it just happened, and it's bringing everything full together for me. But then I think there's the mindfulness and the meditation piece that comes in. It's like, you know, I talk about, you know, Taekwondo and Jiu-Jitsu and everything may be the external martial arts, uh, but I've found that uh, there are the internal martial arts that we can go to through breath work, and I found a lot of healing through Qigong and Tai Chi uh, to where I'm out there, I'm doing like Wim Hof breathing for 30 minutes and I'm just like finding this center of Zen and peace to where I get out of my own head and I'm working on that for a while. Uh, And that's really brought me a lot of balance. Uh, So I I think, you know, we can get onto it. We can talk about the brain and body connection a lot too. I think that has a lot, you know, I've, you find a lot of people who have lost somebody or have suffered from depression and anxiety, they isolate and they stop doing physical activity. They're not getting up. They're not walking. They're, they're getting agoraphobic. They're staying inside where, you know, maybe a little bit of vitamin D may bring the mood up a little bit just by spending an hour outside and, and healing in nature. Um, and I take that true to heart is I think that has done just as much good, if not more than talking to a clinician about my issues. Oh, for sure. For sure. We know that exercise has a, a much greater outcome than, uh, 
any SSRI you can take uh, with regard to helping the, the brain normalize itself and um, getting some of the, the good neurochemicals that you need back, back flowing. Um, you also brushed up on something that I think is a sacred cow in our profession, which is we, we teach people to avoid triggers. And I think that's so disingenuous. And we do it in the, in the addiction recovery space too, where, yeah, it's a good idea to separate yourself from some of the things that brought you down the road to, you know, destruction, but eventually you're going to find a way to, to assign some sort of impact or significance or stigma to virtually anything if you allow yourself to go that way. Um, I try to get people to re-engage in some of those activities that you just said. I mean, God, re-engaging in martial arts after that was the thing that you did with your brother. That takes a tremendous amount of courage and fortitude. Um, and, and then lo and behold, it brings healing. What are you going to do? Like not ever exercise again because it reminds you of the sadness? Like that's a that just sounds like a miserable way to live. So I appreciate you, you mentioning that. And I, I hope that we can approach this stuff with a little bit more innovation and balance than just retreating to the easiest path, which is, oh, just avoid everything, you know, never leave your home again. And then of course you're inside the home and it's like, oh no, there's pictures, put the pictures away. And then it's, you know, oh, I'm eating this breakfast food that I remember. <laughs> it's like, geez, I, I mean, you could go. Yeah. Or, uh, there's a pill for that. <laughs> yeah. Or that. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a pill for that. I'm like, you know what? Uh, I, you know, I hear these stories of my brothers and sisters that are on like 16 to 32 medications or something Good like that. Grief. Like they have a pill for everything. And I'm like, you know what? I, I take two a day now because of the physical activity I've done. I've, I've take, I take two and I've actually taken a lower amount. And my goal is eventually to be off of them because I don't think they're natural. I don't think we should be messing with the brain chemicals that much. But if you need it for a short period of time, hey, I'm going to tell every audience listener out there is do not be ashamed to take an SSRI. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, you may need it to just stabilize and like if it can get there, like there shouldn't be no shame in about if you take aspirin for your heart, there should be no shame in taking an SSRI for your brain. Yep. There should be no shame in that at all. And it's actually one of the things that probably saved me a little bit to bring me back uh, up to homeostasis to when those resources were depleted. Uh, and then you talk about triggers too. So, so Jake, I think we talked about this on another call, you know, when we were talking with the VA last week is, you know, I've been sober for almost 900 days. It's like my coping mechanism was alcohol for a long time, but I live here in Las Vegas. It's like, I'm not going to escape it. it. You know, it's it, booze is part of an American culture. Um, and I have to be comfortable to where like I can walk through a grocery store. I can walk down that aisle and not have to be like, oh, let me buy some beer today. Like you have to be comfortable that like you're not going to be able to just escape that as it's like. And but it also allows you to respect the rights of others who do want to, um, you know, partake in some of that stuff responsibly. And I think, you know, or like I can be in the presence of my my friends and my good colleagues to where. You know, it's not it's not just a joke anymore. They're like, oh, you know, have you over have a beer? I'm like, well, you know me, I'm just going to have a coffee. But then I can be there like a fantasy football draft. I can be there at something that I enjoy while my my friends are in parking in something that brings them joy. Like, I don't have to be pressured into that. And I think that that shows the true sign of healing is where you can respect their decisions. You can stand firm on your decision to not utilize that substance. And to me, like, I found that the most profound is like, I'm reconnected with my friends. I'm comfortable that they're having a beer or they're having a a shot or whatever, but I don't have to partake, but at least I'm in their presence and I value their presence more than I value the substance. How many days, by the way? Uh, I'm around nine. I'm around 900 days. Good for you. Almost three years. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah. 
and it's 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 not easy, but it's a worthy path. And I like the way I feel without it. It's just, it's uh, because I've been through and it caused so much harm is like not only to myself, but to others in my life, it caused harm to others. Um, and it caused a lot of shame and a lot of regret um, that I can never do that again, because I do not want to see others hurt by me using alcohol ever again. The, he's drinking that liquid death though liquid death mountain <laughs> mountain water murder your thirst it literally says liquid death on there that's so it's funny. Yes. liquid I'm, I'm staring at it in the studio once, once your thirst has been murdered the soul of your thirst will begin to escape and float towards the ceiling at this point drink a second sip of liquid death and rip its soul back out down and force it to begin it's gluing its own body parts together so it can crawl back inside you and eventually grow into a fully formed thirst once again as David Goggins would say, take souls and stay hard. Oh, my God. So for those of you who can't see because you're listening and it's audio, not video, Chris has a can in front of him, and he wasn't just freelance riffing on on <laughs> some crazy poetry. It's actually printed on the side of the can. That's hilarious. Is that an energy drink or just water? No, it's uh, water. It's sparkling water. So it's it's... <laughs> It's like heavy metal sparkling water. So here we are with the heavy metal connection then. It's it's like bring it back in. If like if you go to their website or their social media and watch their videos, it's like it's you're you're watching like a metal cartoon. Like it would be something like like Rob Zombie would draw. Like you could play Thunder Kiss 65 while you're listening and you're drinking this. It's like I get in and like I drink this water and I just want to put on, you know, Slayer raining blood and it's just like yes. I have been and so, so it, curious about it the whole time yeah when you walked through the door this morning and i saw the liquid death in your hand i was like has to be an energy you can drink. find it at whole foods <laughs> <laughs> and amazon and, no. and and the cool thing is is that the water actually tastes good oh that's amazing <laughs> that is amazing i would have i would have bet a million dollars that was an energy drink yeah, yeah. I, I, what happens next by causing your thirst head to implode and its brain to squirt out of its ears like I, I just find it so comical. Killing thirst. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But you know what? Like, as they always used to stay in the military, you know, you know, stay hydrated, change your socks. You know, that was the answer. Take Motrin, stay hydrated, and change your socks. That's how you get through field environments. Oh, my goodness. So I'm staying hydrated through liquid death. And it ties into who I am at, at the core. I'm just, I'm this metalhead who likes to ride his bike and uh, be open and vulnerable and transparent about my life. Uh, and then it ties back to the theme of, you know, my unit that I proudly serve at is, uh, I think the more we talk openly as men, as society, is we can get back to um, these things we do so others may live. If we can have these open conversations about mental health and suicide, you know, we may just save somebody else's life by saying, hey, you know what? I connected with you then. I, I took a step to get treatment. I took a step to get sober. I took a step to say, hey, like, yeah, it is not okay to, you know, it is okay to not be okay. Is uh, Thank you for doing that. And this, this is why I love our work is we engage in these conversations. We're honest and we're real that it's not taboo. This is what the majority of us go through. It's like, let's continue to talk about this. Let's put it out in the open and not be afraid to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so much covered. and uh, So man. much that needs to be covered. You got to come back you on do. again. I, don't, I would love to come back on again. We can talk like football and mental health and like bring, you know, and, and there's so many things that we can bring together is there's a lot of harmony in so many environments that we have and, and the connection that we have is, you know, we could talk for days is this could turn into, 
God, I mean, you look at look at how long Jocko's podcasts are. You know, sometimes like five hours. I mean, I could ramble on for days on this, but well, yeah, I still have a lot. Of, I mean, you know, we're up against it, but I still have a lot of questions because you you share things, and I'm like, but you're great at you know, you're great at speaking. By the way, I mean, we, oh, thank we, you. We have some guests that you know we got to pull it out, and others I could just listen to you all day, especially the way you you speak and the things you speak on. Um, but yeah, you got to come back on because I have some other questions too because you. I love the way that you, you know, there's no mask. You just start talking and you, you know, you'll talk about anything. So that's great, man. Hey, um, can I get a, I, I was furiously trying to write down some of what you were saying. Um, the three books I got, uh, sticking points by Hayden Shaw, irresistible by Adam Alter transitions by William Bridges. I got the warrior box, Shauna Springer. Um, what, did, how do you spell John Gaines's last name? Uh, G A N U E S, I believe. Let me let me pull him up on my my socials real quick. He's uh, he's such a good. And what what's Kim's last name? I missed that. Uh, Ruoko R U O C C O. She is uh, with Taps, and she would she's a okay. brilliant person to talk to. I think some of you may hear from her when you get onto the Prevents Task Force and uh, start talking with some of these mayor challenge teams. She does a lot of pr- uh, presentations on postvention okay. through that. We got Center for Loss, uh, Alan Wolfeld. Yeah, W O F E L T, I believe. T. Okay, and then um, Why People Die by Suicide by Thomas Joyner. Um, yeah, you can find him. Uh, you find that book simply. You know, he's out of Florida State University is where he does a lot of his work. Is, is That's where a lot of people go to study uh, suicide is at Florida State through him. And then what was down at LSU with Frank Campbell? It's called the, uh, I believe it's the NTSC. Uh, give me a second to, to pull exactly it up. It's it's the Center for Loss. Um, you know, L-O-S-S is, is big an acronym. Oh, okay. I thought that was... Uh... Alan Wolfelt. Yeah, there's there's two of them. You get misconstrued. Is Dr. Alan Wolfelt has one of the same name, but they're both Center for Loss. Yeah, I'm going to give you. uh, It's actually for Frank Campbell. It's a National Suicidology Training Center (NTSC), and he's the founder of that. Um, So that's down in in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and this is that's probably the one of the most foremost training centers uh, across America for the topic of suicidology. I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm going to start digging into this. Yeah, uh, you know, and for those who may be in there is like study law enforcement or forensics or an investigator, you know, they teach uh, forensic suicidology down there as well, too. Well, thanks for coming on, Um, Mike. You always you always have your uh, your question. I always have my question, but he kind of answered it. Uh, I I guess uh, we know, obviously, the exercise piece. But how do you tend to your mental health? Listen to Iron Maiden. Yeah, a, a lot of it is, um, I, you know, I fall back on some of these principles. Is you just have to think that um, I think even Buddha says it bad. Is life is suffering. You just need to learn how to uh, persevere and push through. Is openly discuss it. Get it off your get it off your chest, um, and learn how to struggle well. Yeah, struggling well. Yeah, I like that. It's good. Well, I appreciate you, Chris Jackamick. Everybody always pronounces your name differently um, because it's spelled kind of funny, like Wiskirchen. Um, but Jack, appreciate you coming in, and um, Mike, another stellar podcast. This we just uh, we can't miss, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I know we're doing well. Yeah. How, how do they people get a hold of you? 
Uh, you can get a hold of me on uh, social media, Chris, C-H-R-I-S dot J-A-C-H on the Instagram, the Insta. You may see some stuff on there, some some pictures. Uh, also on Twitter at C C Jackamick, just C Jackamick. You can find me there. Uh, I won't. My Facebook's a little bit too personal, so I won't put you on there. Or you can just email me at Chris C H R I S dot J A C H I M I E C at gmail.com. You may get just a lot of memes and pictures about heavy metal and Star Wars and all that stuff, but uh, what you see is what you, you get. You have a new follower requested on your uh, Instagram, by the way. Oh, that's awesome! I, I didn't realize you're. I appreciate I didn't that. You're a Jedi, also. Uh, I am that's because uh, it's about bringing balance to the Force. Yeah. And so I could talk all day about mental health and uh, and Yoda and and all that. And I think I think start we can learn a lot uh, about mental health from Star Wars and about perseverance from Star. I 100 percent agree. By the way, and, uh, the metaphors in that in those movies are amazing, and that'll be our next podcast: Star Wars and football. Yeah. And mental health. Star Wars and football, and we'll talk about hope. That's right. Because that's what Star Wars is about. L- literally, the first installment was called A New Hope. All right. Well, on behalf of the Walk the Talk America family, the Zephyr Wellness family, and everybody whose lives we touch, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care.